Welcome to Broadcast from the Border. I'm your host, Mina Venkataraman. This week, Caitlin Dickerson, a national immigration reporter for the New York Times, joins us for a conversation on immigration during the novel coronavirus pandemic. Caitlin has been covering immigration since 2016 for the Times and, during the pandemic, has reported on changes to U.S. immigration policy and the experiences of undocumented immigrants, international students, and migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. In the spirit of social distancing, Caitlin and I met over a Zoom call. She called in from New York and I from Tucson, Arizona just one hour north of the U.S.-Mexico border, where border crossings have plummeted during the COVID-19 pandemic. I asked her what immigration enforcement at the border looks like these days. So very few people are crossing the border right now. Um, Very significant restrictions have been introduced. President Trump jumped on the coronavirus very quickly after it had reached the United States and put into place a series of measures, I think the most significant one being an executive order that invokes his authority under the power of the Surgeon General under Title 42, which is the authorizing statute for health and human services in the U.S. to block entry to the United States, most specifically and probably impactfully to asylum seekers, tourists, and also other types of immigrants. But there were already pretty significant restrictions on border crossing for asylum seekers before the pandemic broke out. And so, you know, one of the populations that is has been impacted most significantly, I would say, is unaccompanied minors who I've written about quite a bit. Those are kids who come to the border alone. Up until the pandemic, they were still allowed to cross the border, including to seek asylum, because of a lot of legal restrictions and protections around that particular population that have existed for a long time because they're considered so vulnerable that they had largely been spared from these other limitations on asylum that had been introduced. But even they are now blocked under the executive order that the president introduced because of the pandemic. In fact, on May 19th, the Department of Homeland Security renewed the border restrictions indefinitely, which would continue to prevent border crossers from seeking asylum. Are there any humanitarian exceptions that still exist under the current situation? There are a few ways it appears that asylum seekers, including kids, can overcome that executive order that we just talked about. The problem is that it's not entirely clear what the methods are. And I'm actually right about to publish a story that talks about this. Is I went to um, CBP, to Customs and Border Protection, and I asked them, okay, who's being Um, subject to this executive order and who's being allowed into the country. And they said, we're not going to tell you because we think if we tell you that smugglers will exploit that information. And so they're not even making clear how the law is being applied and to whom. But generally speaking, there are ways of getting around these restrictions on asylum, the executive order that we're talking about, but also the ones that were in place earlier. One of those is the Convention Against Torture Um, which allows for people to apply for a status very similar to asylum, 
but it's, it's basically made available to people who aren't eligible for asylum. So typically, people who apply for protection under the Con Convention Against Torture are, for example, people who've been deported in the United States in the past, which means they're not eligible for asylum, but they might be eligible for protection under Convention Against Torture. They have to meet this higher burden of proof, which is basically proving a higher likelihood of the possibility of being subjected to torture than um, the likelihood that's required for asylum, which is actually quite low. I believe under the Convention Against Torture, if you are granted protection, that you can stay in the United States indefinitely, but that there's no pathway to citizenship. You briefly mentioned unaccompanied minors and how the process has changed significantly for them. What can an unaccompanied minor expect to see if they cross the border or arrive at a port of entry under the current situation? So according to the data and the reporting that I've done in talking with the federal agencies involved, the vast majority of unaccompanied minors who present themselves at the American border are going to be expelled under this executive order that invokes Title 42 that we've talked about. And that will mean, depending on where they're from, that they're either just pushed back across the border into Mexico or they're actually loaded onto a plane and returned to their home country. Most people are going back to the Northern Triangle and the United States has been deporting people to Guatemala, uh, Honduras, and El Salvador throughout the pandemic. So that's what's gonna happen to most kids. Some kids might be allowed into the United States, but it's hard to tell who. So um, one thing that immigration lawyers who volunteer along the border have been pushing for is to try to convince border agents to conduct these non-refoulement interviews, which are interviews that are designed to sort of, in a way, force the American government to allow somebody in under this principle, which is recognized both in uh, federal law and also in international law of non-refoulement, which means not returning someone to harm. And so the lawyers are you know, approaching the border every day with very extreme alleged cases, you know, people who've been subject to torture, people who've been kidnapped, people who've been you know, violently attacked, and they're trying to get border agents to conduct these non-refoulement interviews because if the person who's trying to cross the border passes basically the test or the burden of proof that's um, presented to them, then they have to be allowed into the country. But the lawyers are telling us that almost nobody is getting these non-refoulement interviews, um, that there's almost nothing that's compelling enough to convince border agents to let people in. I do think it, it's a very subjective conversation. And so I think the reality is that it also depends on who you encounter when you approach the border. Um, what their experience is, what their training on asylum law is, and quite frankly, you know, maybe what kind of mood they're in that day. There are a lot of subjective factors that play a role. Now I want to transition to interior immigration enforcement. What does that look like? How are immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, who have lived here for years or decades experiencing changes in policy? So ICE is conducting very few immigration arrests in the interior of the country right now, and that's pretty typical anytime you have a natural disaster. Um, ICE did the same thing during Hurricane Harvey, during Hurricane Katrina. Um, whenever there's a national emergency going on, especially one that impacts public health, ICE usually winds down its enforcement apparatus. So that's happened. Um, as a result of that, you know, one uh, operation that I reported on, one to send tactical 
agents into sanctuary cities from the border in order to conduct arrests. That was pretty unsuccessful from the beginning because the tactical agents had such limited ability to actually use their, their skills and their training because when they were sent to sanctuary cities, they were enforcing um, civil warrants rather than criminal warrants. And so they were already very much hamstrung, but the, the coronavirus just absolutely rendered that operation really kind of pointless. And the tactical agents were sent home um, with really nothing to show. So not a whole lot of arrests taking place, but undocumented immigrants are certainly feeling the pandemic very significantly in other ways. So I've written about, um, you know, so, so many undocumented workers who are paid under the table and those who are losing work now, they're of course not eligible for federal benefits, you know, things like Medicare, um, things like food stamps, but they also aren't eligible for unemployment benefits if they lose their job because of course they are not, you know, if they're getting paid under the table, there's no record of that um, that the federal government has. But even those undocumented immigrants who do pay taxes and have I-10 numbers, they're also not eligible for unemployment insurance or in addition to unemployment insurance, they're not eligible for stimulus checks that Americans who made under $75,000 a year received. Not only are undocumented immigrants, including those who pay taxes, not eligible for the stimulus checks to help pay their bills, also their spouses, if they paid taxes together, their spouses are also not eligible for that money. These financial setbacks are piling on top of each other in a way that has been incredibly painful, especially for individuals and households that have lost, you know, most or all of their income, because as we've written about, you know, people in most parts of the country aren't having anyone come clean their house. They're not having anyone come and care for their lawn. They're not having anyone come and nanny their children. It's a, both a, a decision that's based on health concerns, but it's also a decision that's based on finances, right? Because so many Americans have lost their income that all of these extra expenditures are going away. And so all of it comes together to make life for undocumented individuals right now, really difficult financially. Unable to claim stimulus checks and ineligible for unemployment benefits, undocumented immigrants also cannot buy health insurance under the Affordable Care Act, leaving them largely stranded both economically and medically during a time of unprecedented illness and death. Meanwhile, they're hesitant to seek medical care in emergencies, afraid that immigration and customs enforcement will deport them. On March 18th, ICE said that it would not make any arrests near hospitals, doctor's offices, or clinics except in the most extraordinary of circumstances, and would not make arrests more broadly unless deemed critical to national security. Is there this general fear still of pursuing medical care? Um, for fear of immigration enforcement in hospitals, or what is that looking like? There is, and that was the case even before the pandemic broke out, is that, you know, the important context here is that we're three years into an administration that has uh, talked very openly and executed on a plan, quite frankly, to, to engage in very robust and aggressive immigration enforcement across the country, um, using every single mechanism available, including leveraging health from state and local governments. And so the result of that over time is this increasing level of fear to engage with any kind of public service or really in a lot of 
homes with undocumented people just to kind of leave the house like that that alone is scaring people more and more recently because they're so worried about encountering ice and so even before the pandemic you saw and i spent a lot of time in south texas for example in the rio Grande valley where um and, and spent time with doctors there who are focused on trying to convince undocumented people to come out of their homes a lot of them live in colonias um, which are these unincorporated areas where they live in, you know, rundown trailer homes, don't always have access to basic services like trash collection or even plumbing. And um, people don't want to leave their houses to go to the doctor. And so if that was already a concern going into a, a, a global pandemic, you can imagine that it, it got even worse. And so the fear is that people won't seek care and, and that that actually not only is is harmful for them as individuals and for their families but also for these broader mitigation efforts that require people to get tested and to get treatment and to keep track of who has the virus and who doesn't how is this pandemic specifically affecting people who are both undocumented but considered essential workers the paradox is the right word. I mean, that's been a, a, an interesting uh, experience for a lot of individuals that I've talked to, you know, people who are farm workers who've spent their entire lives, who spent decades working in the United States in fear of and trying to avoid immigration enforcement. And all of a sudden, with the pandemic, they've basically been handed what amount to kind of freedom papers from their bosses. Their bosses hand them these documents to carry with them and keep with them in their cars when they're on the way to and from work so that they can be presented to police or anybody who pulls them over. The idea for those papers originally was that individuals would need them if travel restrictions were implemented in a way that became so strict that anybody who was out on the road was going to get pulled over. It was like farm workers um, and meat plant workers needed to have a document to present to prove to the police that they did have a legitimate reason to be out on the road. It's this paradoxical experience of, you know, of being told that you're essential um, and provided paperwork that can get you, potentially get you out of an, uh, you know, an otherwise potentially very dangerous um, or threatening interaction with law enforcement. But at the same time, and with that came to a lot of pressure to continue showing up for work, right? For people who work in fields, but also especially for people who work in, um, in meat and poultry production plants. There was a lot of pressure to continue showing up for work. And a lot of those plants provided bonuses that were only available to people who showed up for 100% of their shifts. And so there's a lot of pressure to keep working. But at the same time, there's um, this gap in terms of, or really a, a complete dearth in terms of the resources that are provided by the federal government to help you weather this period of time financially. Um, it's a dilemma for a lot of people and one that actually, as, as we've written, you know, both in the United States and internationally has actually discouraged migration and has encouraged a lot of people to move home because it, it just doesn't make sense when all of these factors are coming together. Specifically, what do you think is one aspect of immigration or immigrant communities that perhaps isn't getting enough coverage during this time? There are so many. I mean, I was glad to be able to write about international students last month because that's a, a community that, quite honestly, I haven't written about very often that I do think is forgotten about. I think that might be because of an assumption a lot of people have that all international students come from very wealthy backgrounds. And it's just not the case. Uh, there's a huge 
diversity of experiences leading up to people moving internationally to study in the United States. And for many, it's, it's something that, you know, their entire families have had to sacrifice in order to be able to support. And so what was interesting with them was, you know, there was a couple of layers. The first is that a lot of them were kicked out of dorms, but because they aren't from this country, didn't have anywhere to live. But on top of that, because of the way that the economic recession has been even worse internationally than it has been in the U.S., their foreign currencies and the currencies that their parents make money in have devalued very significantly. So their education actually became more expensive over the course of the pandemic. One that we haven't written about as much, but that I've seen in the past, and I'd like to find out whether it's happening now, is undocumented people are often just turned away for healthcare, even when they do pursue it. And I wonder whether that's happened amid the COVID pandemic. I can imagine that it has. And looking into the the presence and the legality of that, I think would definitely be worth doing. I want to talk about to the kind of shift we're seeing in the federal response to immigration. As a candidate in 2016, Donald Trump premised his campaign on curbing unauthorized immigration to the United States. But during COVID-19, we're seeing that the Trump administration is also seeking to decrease legal immigration. Your colleague, Miriam Jordan, recently wrote about the possible suspension of H-1B visas, and we're already seeing the suspension of green card issuances. Do you believe the administration's current actions to curb legal immigration are unprecedented or has the shift been a long time coming? I think the shift has been a long time coming. I think the administration has actually been quite clear and open about the fact that they want to limit legal immigration. Some people might miss that because it's it's not always talked about explicitly in those terms. The phrase that you'll hear instead is chain migration. President Trump talks about his frustration with chain migration quite a bit. So does Stephen Miller, who's written most of his immigration policies. Um, Chain migration, when they use that term, they're referring to family-based petitions for immigration. So that could be somebody who's um, filing a petition to sponsor their parent or their spouse or their child or even their sibling to come to the United States. Right now, both U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents can file those petitions. And they make up the majority, I believe it's two-thirds of our legal immigration system right now. And the administration has been very clear that they want to get rid of that. They want to introduce a merit-based system that really prioritizes high-skill workers and, and minimizes the number of people who have lower skills or lower income who are allowed to come into the country. Now, what you're asking me about now, H-1B workers, is very different, right? These are high-skill workers. But two, the administration is, is happy and I think has acknowledged that they're happy to try to limit those visas as well. I think the difference is that the pandemic has provided a good justification to be able to to do so or, or a justification that the administration feels is sufficient to be able to do so because there are so many Americans who are out of work right now that they feel they can make the clear argument that you know jobs in the United States need to be preserved for American workers. But again, I think we've seen the groundwork for this change um, being laid over three years. And given the heavy reliance on foreign workers who are highly skilled, um, both in the tech profession and medical professions, what is this going? What are some of these potential effects that you think will happen if they do curb H one B visas? 
Well, I think we got a glimpse at what the impact might be when the president uh, several weeks ago tweeted that he was going to ban all immigration, all legal immigration. And, you know, my colleagues and I saw that tweet. I think it went out, you know, late at night, Eastern time. We worked all night. We worked early the next day. And it turned out that the president did have a very clear plan for significantly restricting legal immigration, but he faced so much opposition from industry groups, primarily, I believe, the tech industry, that by the time an executive order was introduced, it was significantly pared down and really only, in the end, a 60-day pause on certain types of visa application processing. I think the very same reaction is going to bubble up and to impact an H-1B either pause or ban if one does come to fruition. Because study after study has shown, as we've seen, that these jobs just and these workers aren't interchangeable, that it's not as simple as if you don't allow companies to grant visas, then Americans will get the job instead. Um, Americans often don't have the training. They may not have the geographical needs. They may not have the technical needs. I mean, there, there are so many different factors here. Part of it is, you know, where do people live and where do the jobs exist? Um, but what sorts of jobs are people willing to do? What sorts of jobs are they willing to move for? What sorts of jobs are they trained to do? And so I think that the industry reaction and also just the research about the economic push and pull factors are going to come together and probably limit whatever policy comes out with regard to H-1B visas. You recently reviewed Carla Cornejo via Vicencio's book, The Undocumented Americans. I just finished reading the book and I really enjoyed your review. I think that the book offers such an honest and raw look at the lives of undocumented immigrants. Do you have any other reading recommendations for listeners who want to learn more about modern U.S. immigration policy or the lives that it affects? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, one of the things that I loved so much about Carla's book was that it it's unlike, you know, almost anything else that I've read recently. And I confess that I may just be missing things, but I felt like it it brought up all these conversations that needed to be had that I hadn't seen elsewhere. And that's why, you know, I thought the book was so great. An editor on the National Desk at the Times just published a book, a nonfiction book. Um, looking at immigration policy history, but but family stories as well. Her name's Jia Lin Yang. So her book is called One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over American Immigration. Um, that's one that I'm really looking forward to reading that I haven't yet. There, there is really um, a need for more and better journalism in this space. And so another thing to do is not necessarily look to journalists to translate these experiences for you, but look for more primary sources, you know, get to know and understand um, immigrant communities through social media, um, get to know them through going them going to them in person when you can, um, when the pandemic allows. We at Broadcast from the Border are curious to know, what's it like reporting during the pandemic? Do you do Zoom interviews and phone calls with sources? What's that like for you as an immigration reporter whose work is rooted in on-the-ground experiences and sourcing? 
Yeah, sometimes I use FaceTime to do interviews. I tend to just rely on the phone. You know, the phone is actually a huge part of any reporting job. It's not where you want to do the majority of your interviews, but it's something that, you know, every reporter is pretty, working reporter is pretty experienced with. So I think my interviews are getting longer. Um, I think that I'm having to get nosier and ask a lot of, you know, personal questions, a lot of detail questions that might feel to the person who I'm interviewing like they have nothing to do with what I'm writing, but it's because I'm fishing for some sort of detail that I can use to help paint a picture of them that I would have, under normal circumstances, been able to do just by looking at them and seeing, you know, observing them in their home and seeing how they live and where they live and how they interact with other people, you know, I can't see any of that now. I'm really going in blind. And so instead I have to ask, you know, tell me about your room where you are when we're talking right now. Tell me about the workspace where you've been working from home. Tell me about, you know, where you work. I can't go with you to your place of work. Um, even if you're out of work right now, you know, just, you know, the meat plant, for example, there's one in South Dakota that I've written about quite a bit. And I, I can't tell you how much time I've spent just having people sort of paint a picture for me verbally of what that facility looks like so that I can try to write about it in a way that's interesting and that's engaging to readers. So these longer conversations with a lot more nosy questions um, that I usually preface by explaining, you know, under normal circumstances, I'd actually be there with you and I wouldn't have to ask all of this, but I hope you can bear with me and then go from there. This episode was produced and edited by Jess Eng. Thank you to Emily Hong for creating our original music. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and follow us on Spotify or iTunes for more content. And find us on storiesfromtheborder.org or follow us at Border Stories AZ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. <laughs>